Today's episode is brought to you by Normal Now, a campaign powered by Electrify America. Because some people think electric cars are just a weird new trend, but the truth is, they're normal now. Last night, there was a presidential debate. We watched it, but Skim This is about giving you the context on why stories matter. And sometimes, context takes time to understand. Also, sleep. But don't worry. The Daily Skim's writers, fact-checkers, and editors were up all night breaking down everything you need to know about what went down at the final Trump-Biden face-off. To read today's Daily Skim newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. Otherwise, consider this a debate-free zone. Which, if you've already voted or already made up your mind about who you want to vote for and have a plan for how you're going to vote, you've earned. Welcome to Skim This. First up, we'll bring you up to speed on three stories we've been tracking this week, including a big announcement from Pope Francis on same-sex civil unions, whether rising COVID cases mean lockdowns are coming back, and why Iran is sending people mean 2020 emails? We'll break it down. After that, we've got an important story from breast cancer doctors and breast cancer survivors about why COVID literally cannot be a reason to avoid staying on top of your breast health. And we've got the story on something you might notice the next time you log on to Disney+. Plus. All right, let's do it. Tonight, an historic shift from the leader of an ancient institution. Pope Francis has broken with tradition. Francis cementing his reputation as the Pope of Surprises. This week, there was some big news out of the Vatican. In a documentary that premiered Wednesday, Pope Francis expressed his support for same-sex civil unions, saying homosexual couples should be, quote, legally covered and that they are children of God. Let's pause for a second, because these are the strongest words of support for the gay community from any pope ever. While Francis did stop short of saying he supports gay marriage, his remarks were still celebrated by many around the world. So why was this such a big deal? It's because the Catholic Church historically hasn't been supportive of the LGBTQ community before Pope Francis. While the Church says gay individuals need to be treated with respect, Catholic doctrine reads that homosexual intimacy is, quote, intrinsically disordered. This position goes back centuries, but it's one that Francis has shown a history of questioning, to an extent. Like in 2013, when Francis was reportedly asked about a gay priest. His response, who am I to judge? Or in 2016, when he said priests need to be open to welcoming individuals in non-traditional relationships. So how does the rest of the church feel about these remarks? Conservative Catholics have accused the Pope of ignoring church doctrine, while more progressive Catholics are split between celebration and confusion. Progressive Catholics argue that Francis's most recent remarks offer limited support to LGBTQ individuals. As we mentioned earlier, the Pope didn't say he supports same-sex marriage, only civil unions. And these are just statements. The church's actual doctrine or teaching has yet to reflect Francis's shift in attitude. Still, according to religious scholars, Francis's new comments mark a pretty major departure for the Catholic Church. Some majority Catholic nations, like Italy, already allow same-sex civil unions, while Argentina, the home country of Pope Francis, and Ireland have gone even further, allowing for full same-sex marriage. And while it's still TBD whether the Pope's words will convince other countries to follow suit, remember, it's the Pope. When he speaks, people tend to listen. Next up, 
We've been asking for months. Is the U.S. and the world headed for another big wave of COVID-19 infections as the weather starts getting a bit colder? And now, the answer looks to be a pretty clear yes. Whether you're looking at the U.S. or other countries like the Czech Republic or Iran. And for the most part, the way governments are responding to the rising case numbers is with more lockdowns. COVID-19 is surging once again worldwide. New lockdowns throughout Europe. In France, residents have been placed under a curfew. Today starts the beginning of the state's second shutdown plan in New York City. But not all these lockdowns are created equal. On one end of the spectrum, entire countries are bringing back nationwide lockdowns. Ireland is about to close all non-essential businesses for six weeks, and police will use checkpoints to stop people traveling more than three miles away from their homes. A bit less intense is what's happening in France, Italy, and Spain, where certain cities or regions with high COVID case counts are restricting travel or enforcing new curfews. And on the other end of the spectrum are local lockdowns, like those seen in parts of New York, where decisions about whether certain schools or businesses can stay open are being made on a block-by-block basis. Like it or not, that's what we're seeing now. And even countries like Sweden, which never imposed a lockdown this spring, is thinking about ordering a voluntary one now. So did it have to come to this? A lot of public health experts say no. These lockdowns weren't inevitable. Lockdowns were intended to buy time, since a lot of governments weren't ready to respond when the COVID-19 outbreak began. They didn't have enough ventilators or hospital beds or enough PPE to protect health workers. So lockdowns were supposed to give governments a bit more time to prepare. Here was the director general of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, making this point back in March. The point of these actions is to enable the more precise and targeted measures that are needed to stop transmission and save lives. Except in a lot of places, governments didn't do much with the time that lockdowns bought them and didn't embrace those more precise and targeted measures Dr. Tedros was talking about. For instance, the U.S. never implemented a national COVID-19 response policy. It also never rolled out practices like contact tracing, in which health officials would track who'd infected who and then order specific people to quarantine. Contact tracing was successfully rolled out in countries like Singapore and South Korea, but it hasn't taken off in the U.S. And making matters worse, people are getting tired of some of the other public health measures we were supposed to embrace in order to avoid lockdowns. Just this week, health officials in states all over the U.S. have warned that COVID fatigue is on the rise and that people being less vigilant about safety measures could be leading to an increase in infections. In some European countries, you can now be fined hundreds of dollars, or euros, for not wearing a mask, or possibly thousands of dollars for violating curfews. Not to get all meta here, but seems like masking up and following the rules could be good news for your wallet, which we're very into here at The Skim. All right, for our final quick update this week, let's go back in time to 2016. Remember all those headlines about Russian interference in the election? Warnings that were given prior to election day, but were really taken seriously and investigated after? It turns out that wasn't a one-time thing. And now federal officials are flagging hey, this may be an issue ahead of November 3rd. On Wednesday, the director of national intelligence announced that Iran and Russia had taken, quote, specific actions to interfere in this year's election. And specifically, he said both countries had gotten their hands on voter registration information. 
This data can be used by foreign actors to attempt to communicate false information to registered voters that they hope will cause confusion, sow chaos, and undermine your confidence in American democracy. Okay, wait, what? Reportedly, Iran has already made moves with the data it was able to get its hands on. Registered Democratic voters in several states, including Florida and Alaska, reported that they received emails that appeared to be from the far-right group, the Proud Boys, and that those emails contained a threat. Switch your party registration and vote for President Trump, quote, or else. After investigating, the federal government says those emails, along with videos spreading misinformation about voter fraud, actually came from Iran. But there are still a few parts to this story that remain unclear. First, how Russia and Iran got that voter registration info. Officials aren't claiming that the two countries hacked into U.S. systems to get it, which could mean it's easier to get your hands on that info than you might think. And second, we don't know what, if any, effect this news could have on the election, or what exactly Russia or Iran were trying to accomplish in all of this. Were they trying to get caught? Also, was this news so important the FBI needed to hold a big press conference about it just days before the election? So there are still a lot of open questions here. But for now, FBI Director Christopher Wray says every voter should be confident their vote will be secure and that the FBI will aggressively investigate all foreign election interference. But you can probably expect the issue of election security isn't going away anytime soon. Some people think electric cars are weird. But when you think about it, it used to seem pretty weird to get your news from a little voice coming out of your headphones, too. Like podcasts, electric cars are normal now. With longer ranges, you can take them just about anywhere. And with lots of charging stations and faster charging times, it's easy to charge up on the way. Plus, with lots of affordable models and less routine maintenance, electric cars may actually save you money. Find out more about how electric cars are normal at normalnow.com. So I was taking a shower. I had just finished breastfeeding. and I just randomly started feeling my boob. I wasn't like trying to do a self-exam. I had never really done one, but I felt this huge lump. So I, I knew that I had a family history. Two years prior, my aunt had passed away from breast cancer. She was stage four, triple negative, and within a few months, um, she had passed away. So before she passed away, she asked all of her family members to get tested. I ended up having a mammogram, got the ultrasound, and they did all the biopsies all that same day. And on Halloween of 2017, um, they called me and said that I had breast cancer. Sorry. It's still, uh, this is still one of my first times kind of telling my story in public, but I was obviously afraid. I had just found out that I was pregnant. I was only six weeks pregnant. That's Gretchen Herrera. She's a breast cancer survivor and former ICU nurse from Houston, Texas. She talked to The Skim this week about her battle with breast cancer, all while being pregnant with her third child. Pregnancy-associated breast cancer, or PABC, is rare. It's found in one of every 3,000 pregnant women. But when it does happen, it adds an incredible amount of strain both emotionally and physically. I did weekly chemo treatment. I, I took a break to have the baby, and now I have this perfectly healthy, happy, amazing 
um, two-year-old boy. And after I had the baby a few weeks later, I had my mastectomy. And I came back Ned, which means no evidence of disease. And so I was declared, yeah, yeah, I was cleared cancer-free. A year after she finished her radiation treatment, Gretchen began the next phase of her recovery, breast reconstruction, which is a really complicated procedure all on its own. And since she was also genetically predisposed to ovarian cancer, she decided to go through additional surgery as a preventative measure. Fighting breast cancer took years of her life, and Gretchen says she's only starting to reflect on what she's gone through. I had been living in fear ever since my initial diagnosis, um, fear of dying. And I realized I'm no longer afraid of dying. Um, my biggest thing is that I'm more afraid of not living anymore in the sense that I want to make sure that I'm living a full life. The only thing I control is the life I have right here. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, a month that Gretchen says can sometimes feel a little bit triggering, but she does still think it's an opportunity to raise awareness. So I appreciate y'all like having breast cancer awareness, but my big thing is like there's action. There's Women are still dying from breast cancer every day, no matter how much awareness there is out there. So this week, we're going to go past just awareness and walk through the actions Gretchen knows people need to take. But first, we need to talk about why 2020 has been such a challenging year in the fight against breast cancer. Remember, back in March, a lot of hospitals pressed pause on elective procedures in order to manage the influx of COVID patients. Some of those procedures that were considered elective cancer screenings. But this was also something that federal health officials and cancer organizations even urged people to delay. Which, when it comes to breast cancer, is really, really bad. Because early detection through things like getting a mammogram plays a huge role in getting more successful treatment. Well, the idea of screening mammography is that it provides the woman the opportunity to have the cancer identified. And this is key for several reasons. Dr. Kelly Hunt is a surgical oncologist at MD Anderson who specializes in breast surgery. One is if, if it's diagnosed at a non-invasive stage, that means it is not uh, infiltrating in the breast, it will not metastasize to other areas of the body, and so it can limit the number of therapies that might be needed for curative treatment. Early detection helps to personalize the approach and understand your options rather than go for a one-size-fits-all kind of deal. It's also an opportunity to find out about other things like how your family health history might put you at a higher risk. Experts say that even though health clinics were trying to prevent patients' exposure to the virus, this year's delays in screening and treatment could have far-reaching consequences. And months into the pandemic, doctors observed dramatic drops in the number of cancer diagnoses, which sounds great, but that doesn't paint the full picture. It's really tough. We are seeing more advanced cancers presenting now. Women who were already, for whatever reason, delaying their screening. And then when the pandemic hit, it further pushed things off. And these pandemic problems are the new problems around identifying and treating breast cancer. But there are also a lot of old problems that are still challenging today, like racial disparities in healthcare. According to the CDC, black women are 40% more likely to die from breast cancer than white women, even though both groups get breast cancer at about the same rate. Why is that? 
A lot of it has to do with both socioeconomic factors and the structural racial inequities that exist in our healthcare system. This can lead minorities who have higher rates of unemployment and who've been hit especially hard by the economic impacts of COVID-19 to experience reduced access to quality health insurance. For instance, less access to doctors and delays to adequate screening, which could mean that when you are diagnosed, it's at a later stage. So the cancer might be more advanced by the time you get treatment. So these challenges in identifying and treating breast cancer still exist, and they need to be worked on. That's because there have been some serious scientific advances to early detection in the last few years, which everyone could benefit from, like genetic testing and counseling. The BRCA, or BRCA gene test, is a blood test that analyzes your DNA to see if you have a gene mutation that increases your risk for breast cancer. It's a test that's recommended for those that have a family health history of breast or ovarian cancer. The FDA has also approved some direct-to-consumer options for home saliva test kits that can detect a number of different cancers. Though there are some major limitations with these tests. First, they cost around 150 to 250 bucks. Second, they're not as thorough as a proper screening. But if anything does show up in your results, you should talk it through with your doctor. Okay, so while all that new science is cool, those tests might not be an investment you can make. So let's talk about other options. Say getting a screening wasn't on your radar, and maybe you're not even sure where to start when it comes to assessing your own risk. You might be thinking, aren't I too young to get a mammogram? You've probably heard that regular mammograms are something you don't have to worry about until you get older. But remember that breast cancer isn't one size fits all, which very much comes into play when thinking about taking extra precautions. I'm Dr. Deborah Lindner. I am the Chief Medical Officer at Bright Pink. We are a nonprofit that focuses on knowing uh, women's risk of breast and ovarian cancer and proactively managing that risk. They made a recommendation a few years ago that um, average risk women can delay mammograms until age 50. But Dr. Lindner says it's best not to assume you're average. And so if you just assume, oh, I must be average risk, I can wait until I'm 50, that's not actually being very smart or personalizing your risk assessment. There are a lot of women who need to start mammograms at 40 or even at 35 based on whether or not they're high risk. So how do you know exactly what your risk level is? That's where something medical experts call breast self-awareness comes into play. Rather than just doing a regular breast self-exam, Dr. Lindner says breast self-awareness takes into account a lot of other aspects. And she looks at it as a breakdown of four pillars. The first, which we've mentioned, is understanding your family history and any genetic predispositions you may have to cancer. The second is knowing what your normal breast tissue looks and feels like. So what I recommend is that um, at a time in the month that's kind of distant from your period, so maybe you know two weeks after your period, that you just make sure that getting out of the shower in the morning, you look in the mirror and really look at your breasts. Every woman's breasts are unequal. So you, know, you should know that, well, my right breast is a little bit bigger than my left one, or my left nipple is a little bit retracted, because that's actually really common for women to have asymmetry in their breasts. If the skin on one side has suddenly developed a different appearance, almost like a toughness, like the skin of an orange with little dimpling in it, that's a concerning sign. 
then feeling the breast is important as well. A lot of women don't know that their breast tissue actually goes all the way to their sternum in the middle, and it goes all the way up to their collarbone and all the way under their armpit. The third pillar is figuring out when you should get your first screening. According to Dr. Lindner, if you have a relative who was previously diagnosed with breast cancer, you should get a mammogram 10 years earlier than when that relative was diagnosed. So if your mom had breast cancer at 45, you should start getting a mammogram at 35. And the fourth pillar comes down to how you do you, as in your lifestyle. So we know that drinking too much alcohol increases the risk of breast cancer. So it's recommended that women never have more than one glass of alcohol per day, if any at all. We also know that being over your appropriate BMI, so being overweight or obese increases the risk of breast cancer, as does in exercise or inactivity. So I recommend that women exercise for at least 30 minutes most days of the week. And that's not just for your general health, but also to reduce the risk of breast cancer. So what's the skin? There's a lot to be aware of when it comes to breast cancer. There's the good, like advancements in genetic testing over the last decade, and the not so good, from the racial disparities that still exist when it comes to women of color getting the healthcare they need, to the COVID-19 pandemic preventing so many women from getting screened or treated. In the United States, one in eight women will develop breast cancer during her lifetime. It's estimated that over 42,000 women and just over 500 men die from breast cancer every year. And health experts predict that COVID means those numbers could be even higher in 2020. Thankfully, self-care is a big part of early detection, which means you can have a big role when it comes to understanding your risk. And there's been a shift within the medical community that rather than just doing a regular self-exam, women use the breast self-aware approach and take a more holistic look at all the factors that may contribute to your risk, like family history, changes in how your breasts look and feel, having an idea of when you should really start screening, and the impact of your lifestyle decisions. We've spent the last 20 years um, wearing pink and pinning pink ribbons on our vests. And I think it's so important uh, for women to know that awareness without action really doesn't save any lives. So awareness and specifically breast self-awareness is the most important thing we can do. And that involves action. For more on what you need to know about breast cancer prevention, check out our guide at theskim.com slash skimwell. Okay, it's 2020 time. And at this point, you probably don't need to hear that much more about President Trump or former Veep Joe Biden. But if you've checked out everything that's on the ballot in your state, chances are you've noticed there are a lot of other names you've likely heard less about, starting with candidates for the Senate and the House of Representatives. So you want to make sure that you have somebody who will advocate for what you need. These races are really crucial. That's Wendy Schiller, a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at Brown University. She says a lot of people vote right on down their ballots based on how they feel about the president or their party. So there's something called presidential coattails. And presidential coattails are literally as if the, the U.S. Senate candidate, the U.S. House candidate, the um, state legislative candidate, uh, state House, the state Senate, are grabbing on to the coattails of the president. Basically, in the last few elections, Schiller says voters have been pretty loyal to the president's party, choosing Senate and House candidates from the same party all the way down the ballot. But 
when the president is unpopular, then the Senate and the House and the state legislative candidates try to run away from the president. In other words, that Republicans who might have otherwise won re-election if the president wasn't running might suffer because Trump is at the moment not as popular. And what happens in these other races this year could have a lot of impact. For instance, whether Democrats are able to win back control of the Senate could boil down to just a few individual Senate races in states like Iowa, Maine, or North Carolina. Polls in those states are super close. And if voters vote out incumbent Republicans on account of Trump, then Democrats could find themselves back in charge of the Senate, which holds a lot of power for things like picking Supreme Court justices. But even if you're not in one of those key Senate swing states, the other races down your ballot could still have a major impact on the values your state, city, or town lives and is governed by. This is everything to do with abortion, with um, uh, school funding, with health care, with Medicaid expansion under Obamacare, if you're in a state that redistributes money for education. If you have somebody who is on the side of redistributing and on the side of grabbing money from wealthier districts and making sure that lower income districts get that money for education, it matters a great deal that that person is elected. Nathaniel Rakich, an elections analyst at political news site 538 says, when we vote for someone at the state or county level, we give them the power to define what the laws we live by look like. Because a state law is just as binding on people as, um, as a federal law. Sure, they cover a smaller footprint than the presidency, certainly, or even, you know, Senate or governor, which is statewide. But for the people who live in that district or area, you know, these people's policies affect you just as much as the president's policies. And depending on where you live, there are a bunch of people even further down the ballot who you might be asked to vote for, from judges to school board members or even coroners. Those races all the way down the ballot might seem small, but they can dictate how everything from libraries to courtrooms and jails are run. And once you've gone through all the names on your ballot, make sure to look for any ballot measures, where you might get to weigh in on how your state operates or even what the air smells like. For example, um, you know, some states are um, asking whether to legalize marijuana this year. That's right. It's up to voters in Arizona, Montana, New Jersey, and South Dakota to decide whether to legalize recreational marijuana. And there's more. California voters will decide if they want to get rid of cash bail. Colorado residents will vote on whether they want to introduce a cutoff point for abortions. Mississippi voters will determine whether they modify the state's flag and remove the Confederate battle cross. And there are voting reforms on the ballot in a handful of states, including Florida and Alaska. But there's one final thing to remember. All of these races from who's gonna be the next president to how local hospitals and libraries are gonna be funded are still undecided, no matter what you might be seeing in the polls. The polls have measured who is likely to vote and that probably includes you if you're listening to this podcast. And as a result, uh, in order for the polls to be correct, you need to vote. Finally, remember this? Well, now the intro of the next Disney animated movie you sit down to watch could look a bit different. Recently, Disney announced they'll be putting a 12-second written disclaimer at the top of some of their classic animated films available on their streaming service, Disney+. And it's something viewers can't hit fast forward on. 
That disclaimer will be added to certain films that contain racist imagery and cultural stereotypes, which are present in some of Disney's most famous movies like Aladdin, Dumbo, The Aristocats, and Peter Pan. If you've seen them, you may remember that in Peter Pan, Native Americans are referred to by a slur. Or in The Aristocats, where songs mock Chinese and East Asian culture. Adding this disclaimer is Disney's response to decades-old criticism that some of their movies perpetuate racism and stereotyping. That's a concern that's gained new urgency this year after the Black Lives Matter movement highlighted systemic inequities that extend to marketing and media. This isn't the first time Disney has tried to address this issue. Just last year, it added a shorter disclaimer to some films and removed others from its content library altogether. So this time, we called up someone to make sense of how this new disclaimer is any different from Disney's past actions. My name is Hemant Shah. I'm a professor of journalism and mass communication at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I mean, it's just print. It's just a, a, the advisory. It just appears before the, the film and it lasts for 12 seconds. Is that enough? Probably not. Where is the discussion about the harms? Where is the attempt to spark a conversation? Where is that conversation going to take place? Who's going to be in that conversation? What will, those, what will that conversation lead to? Those are questions that Disney has not addressed. Shaw says those questions are important to ask because seeing racial stereotypes in the media can have lasting effects. I think any time that you have stereotypes or any other type of content that's problematic, that is widely distributed over a long period of time and is consumed by a lot of people in the society, they become accepted as normal. They're normalized. They're not questioned at all. Shaw is concerned about how children watching these animated films think about others, but also how kids might end up thinking about themselves. For minority kids specifically, there's a lot of research that shows that uh, there's an impact on self-esteem, that uh, they start to question, well, that's not how I see myself. Why is that out on popular culture? And eventually, they may begin to believe that uh, they're not as worthy. Disney isn't the only company confronting its history and relationship to racism this year. And other media corporations from HBO to Warner Brothers have either pulled down films or added warnings to their own content. Shaw says that while companies can often act slowly and sometimes too late, in order to make progress, his best advice is to find chances to address stereotypes directly in your own house, instead of waiting on those media platforms to take action. If you're going to show your kids or your little cousins or nephews or nieces one of these movies, don't just start it and walk away and don't use it as a babysitter, as <laughs> they used to say. Uh, sit down with them and watch the film and literally stop the movie when it seems like you need to say something like, do you know any people that talk this way or that way? and uh, explain to them that the, what, uh, these are exaggerations, these are misrepresentations in terms, of course, that, the, that kids could understand. That's the only way to do it. He also says to remember that these representations aren't just prevalent in decades-old children's movies. They also exist in more subtle ways in pop culture. It's really hard to find egregiously problematic images these days of the kind that we're talking about in the earlier Disney films. But what we find is systematic kinds of exclusion of certain voices, certain images in media. We find, or in the case of, let's say, African-Americans on television, 
we find mostly African-Americans in comedy programs. Very rarely do they lead drama shows, for example. So it's not racist per se, but it's a misrepresentation. If you want to hear more of these kinds of conversations, we're also having them on our other podcast, Skimmed from the Couch. It's a weekly interview show where the Skims co-founders and co-CEOs, Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg, sit down with powerful female leaders to talk about career, work, and culture. And this week, scholar activist Dr. Yaba Blay joined us to talk about what representation in the workplace means to her. I only want to work in situations where I see the potential for actual change or I see that folks actually want to do something, right? And so if you have a table, open the door, let us sit down and go away. Stop inserting yourself into every conversation. It's not about you. To find Skim from the Couch, type in Skim with two M's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr and Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. And I'm your host, Justine Davey. We'll be back in your feed again next Friday. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. 